Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On today's episode, we're discussing human rights in Mexico. Right now, human rights are a prominent issue in the discourse about Mexico. Mexico's President López Obrador is a popular but controversial populist who often adopts a somewhat Trumpian stance towards journalists, activists, and NGOs. López Obrador frequently dismisses his critics at home as corrupt and politically motivated hypocrites, but he also has bristled at criticism from the European Parliament and the U.S. State Department about his track record on defending human rights. El Departamento de Estado, el gobierno de Estados Unidos, hace sus recomendaciones sobre México. Para empezar, nosotros no nos metemos a opinar sobre violaciones de derechos humanos en Estados Unidos. Somos respetuosos, no podemos opinar sobre lo que sucede en otro país. Entonces, ¿por qué el gobierno de Estados Unidos opina sobre cuestiones que solo competen a los mexicanos? President López Obrador has embraced the viewpoint that national sovereignty is more important than any concept of universal human rights. It's a stance that mirrors arguments made by China and other authoritarian governments in Latin America. In order to discuss the current dynamics in Mexico, I reached out to Tyler Matiache, a Mexico researcher at Human Rights Watch. Hi, Tyler. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to ask you, I know that Mexico's President López Obrador has recently been forced to confront evidence that his government has spied on critics, including investigative journalists and a human rights activist. And I'm wondering, why are these allegations significant? Yeah, absolutely. These are really concerning allegations. And since those initial allegations come out, there's also now been a case uh, of an opposition politician who discovered that he was also being spied on um, with a spyware software called Pegasus, um, which is designed for governments to use against terrorist groups or organized crime. And it allows the user to have total access secretly to the phone of whoever is being spied on. Um, and this is not something that's new in Mexico. Um, there's a history of the government spying on journalists and activists and opposition politicians in Mexico. Um, President López Obrador was spied on by previous governments. Um, so he had made a promise at the beginning of his term that this is not a practice that would continue. Um, although he has continued the practice of being very hostile towards human rights groups and, and journalists. Um, and a lot of people had wondered whether the government was continuing to use spyware. Um, the, the, the spyware use, it's important to note, um, governments, you know, 
all around the world can use different kinds of technologies to do things like tap phones or monitor people. And it's not necessarily always wrong or illegal for them to do that. Um, what makes this wrong um, is first of all, um, the surveillance that we've learned about now and the surveillance that happened in the past is that there was a big scandal in the previous presidency um, has been conducted uh, secretly and without any kind of court order or anything which is necessary to intervene in people's phones. And it's also very clear that it has nothing to do with any legitimate reason for conducting surveillance, right? This is not about breaking up terrorist groups or, or anything modernized crime. It's very clear that the people who have been targeted um, by spyware by this government um, fit the same pattern as the people who were targeted with spyware under the previous government, which is it's people who have investigated abuses, uh, people who have been critical of the administration. Um, and one of the things that's concerning here is um, under the previous government, um, and it's I'll mention a bit briefly about that, under previous president Enrique Peña Nieto, um, it was revealed that the government had used the spyware Pegasus against at least 15,000 people. It made Mexico the largest user in the world of the spyware software. Um, and uh, that, as I said, has, has continued under this government. Um, but what's concerning there is under the previous administration, the spyware was used by officials in the administration, by, by the attorney general's office. What's been discovered now is that the spyware is being used by the military. Um, the military appears to have been spying particularly on journalists who investigate military abuses, on human rights defenders who try to uncover military abuses. Um, and it comes at a time when we're seeing an expansion overall of the power and the role of the military in Mexican life. President Lopez Obrador has really spearheaded a huge expansion of the military's power. Um, and it's sort of been his solution to everything. He says that the military is incorruptible. And so whenever there's a problem, um, he will transfer some civilian task to the military. And, and it's important to understand that this isn't just about public security, which has been a big concern of ours for decades in Mexico, the fact that the military has been deployed for public security leading to abuses. So that's actually a great segue into my next question. We know that Reporters Without Borders ranks Mexico as the most dangerous country in the world for journalists. And the Committee to Protect Journalists has recorded 13 journalists murdered in the first eight months of 2022, which is a historic high. And total, 151 journalists have been killed in Mexico since 2000. The NGO Global Witness ranks Mexico as the most dangerous country in the world for environmental activists. In total, 54 environmental activists were killed in Mexico in 2021, up from 30 in 2020. Furthermore, over 1,700 environmental activists have been killed in Mexico over the past decade. 
Are these rankings describing Mexico as the most dangerous country in the world for journalists and environmental activists fair? Or do you think that in any way they overstate the risks that activists and media workers face in Mexico? They're absolutely fair and they don't at all overstate the risks, which are very real. Um, Mexico consistently ranks as one of the most dangerous countries, if not the most dangerous country for journalists in the world. Usually wherever, it's on par with wherever there is a war. So last year it was on par with Ukraine. In the past, it's been on par with Syria or Afghanistan. Um, so people usually say it's the most dangerous peacetime democracy um, for journalists. Um, it's also one of the top most dangerous places for human rights defenders um, and for environmental activists. Um, and I don't think it's overstated at all. On the contrary, I think it's something that is sometimes underreported because people don't expect that to be the case because Mexico is not at war um, officially. Um, and th there are a, a number of reasons, I think, for um, these levels of, of violence and the risk that um, journalists and activists face. Um, it's important to understand that usually... Um, the people who are under the most threat are journalists or activists in rural areas of the country, so outside of Mexico City, who work on exposing corruption um, or on opposing um, projects that might be in the interest of local government officials or organized crime groups. Um, and, and one of the issues there is that often at a local government level in Mexico, it's hard to distinguish between local government and organized crime groups. The, the, the sort of links between them are so complicated. Um, so it, it also then becomes difficult to say, you know, were the, you know, was this journalist who was exposing corruption killed by the local government or by organized crime? Um, because those those two organizations, I guess, or structures are are, are sometimes the same in many places. Um, but the the big factor there is impunity, um, and that's not just an issue with um, these killings of journalists and activists. It's a, it's an issue across the board in Mexico. Uh, Mexico's justice system is really, really, really ineffective at investigating and prosecuting crimes. And, and the result is that when there is an interest in using violence to get what you want, whether that means killing the journalist who's investigating the corruption in your local government or killing an activist who is opposed to a project that you stand to benefit from, a lot of people see that as a very low cost solution because it's pretty rare that a murder is investigated and the those responsible are identified and that they, if they are identified, that they go to trial. And if they do go to trial, that they would actually be convicted and go to jail. That's that's something that rarely happens for any crime in, in Mexico. Um, 
so it's it, it's a real problem um there have been some efforts um by the federal government and state governments to address the issue um, there is a protection mechanism there's a federal protection mechanism and there are state protection mechanisms where if you're a journalist or if you're an activist or an environmental defender um, who is under threat, you can request protection from the government and you'll get things like a panic button or maybe bodyguards or things like that. But even that program um, can only have a limited effect when people know that at the end of the day, it's unlikely that um, that killing will be punished. Okay, so I know that, you know, a lot of foreign academics and NGOs are trying to draw attention to the, the crisis that um, activists and journalists are facing in, in Mexico. But I'm wondering, within Mexico and within the political discourse uh, in Mexico, how is this problem being handled? And in particular, I'm wondering if you could describe President Lopez Obrador's rhetoric towards journalists, activists, and independent NGOs. That's been a big issue of concern for us. Um, President Lopez Obrador has been um, very hostile to journalists, to activists, uh, to human rights defenders, to NGOs. Um, he um, is a person who really dominates the media narrative. The president starts every morning with a two hour long press conference. Um, and he will often use that press conference to pick out um, and identify by name um, specific journalists or activists who have been critical of his government, um, who maybe have exposed wrongdoing somewhere in the administration or who have um, worked on, on a corruption case or something like that, or who simply um, oppose a policy of his administration. Um, there have been situations where, um, you know, there they, he has a PowerPoint there and he'll put up a photo and name of someone and say, this is this journalist and this is how much this journalist makes in salary and here is, you know, information about where this journalist lives. It's really very worrying um, and, and very little recognition of the important role that journalists and activists play in Mexico and especially that, that human rights defenders play um, because, as I mentioned, the, you know, this issue of impunity means that for victims of abuses, it's often impossible to get any kind of justice without the support of some kind of human rights organization. Um, and those organizations play a really critical role. Um, and the president has, you know, spent a lot of time demonizing them. Um, so that is concerning as part of the context uh, of this violence against journalists um, because it contributes to an overall idea that if journalists or activists are killed, they are not necessarily people 
that the government views as important or valuable. Um, the UN a few years ago did a big report on the problem of violence against journalists and activists in Mexico. And one of their big recommendations was, apart from dealing with these structural problems, apart from improving the protection mechanism and reducing impunity, was there should be a clear message from the federal government that um, journalists and activists and human rights defenders and feminists and NGOs and environmentalists and everyone else all play an important role in a democratic society, um, and they are not our enemy. And that is not at all the message that we're hearing from this president. I wanted to take a brief pause to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by Nomade Tostadores. Mexico is known for producing some of the best coffee in Latin America, Total, in 2021, Mexico exported $350 million of raw coffee beans. One of the best local roasters in Mexico City is Nomade Tostadores. Residents and visitors can sample their high-end coffee at Café Blom in Colonia Juarez or Bada Funky in Colonia del Valle. Nomade coffee can also be purchased online and shipped worldwide. Check them out on Instagram. I'm wondering if you can summarize the dynamic in Mexico right now. And I'm, I'm wondering, overall, what three words would you use to describe Lopez Obrador's approach to human rights? His, appeal, his approach to human rights. So in three words, I would say superficial, dismissive, and hostile, maybe. Um, the truth is that I think it's tough to summarize it only in that his sort of worldview doesn't center around human rights. Um, Lopez Obrador um, is leading, he's a politician who's been a very visible, vocal person in Mexican politics for a long, long time. And he has always framed himself as the leader of this sort of righteous movement. He actually calls his government um, the fourth transformation um, and has this narrative that this is a historic moment and we're transforming public life in Mexico and you're either with us or against us. So there isn't really an openness um, to have dialogue with human rights groups or anyone else on, um, on, on, on legitimate concerns about human rights issues, of which there are many. Um, and many of them are not things that are Lopez Obrador's fault. Um, they're, you know, they're problems that have existed in human rights in, in Mexico for decades that he's failing to address. But when people bring them up, um, he will immediately accuse them of being part of the opposition or being paid to by the CIA or something to make up um, stories to bring down his government. Um, so he doesn't even want to engage in the conversation about 
um, about whether these things are related to human rights. Um, and when there have been criticisms from other governments or from the UN or from international organizations or, you know, the European Parliament, for example, has um, issued resolutions expressing concern about the killing of, of journalists in Mexico. And, and many U.S. congressmen have, have sent letters and done the same. And his response, rather than saying, yes, those are legitimate concerns, we're also worried about them, is to say, mind your own business. Um, this is an issue of sovereignty, um, and you should not meddle in our internal affairs, um, which is um, nonsense because human rights issues are not an issue of sovereignty. If um, Mexico is failing to live up to its human rights commitments in international law, it's the responsibility of other governments to um, to say that and, and, and to call call them out. So it sounds like you picked some pretty negative words here, dismissive, hostile, and superficial. And I'm wondering, overall, what grade would you give Lopez Obrador for his policies and discourse regarding human rights? Yeah, um, I think I would give him an F, um, which is a, a, <laughs> a bad grade. Um, and it's not, the thing is that it's not because he is worse than his predecessors. In some areas, he's not. Um, but it's because he has focused, instead of trying to resolve the systemic, serious human rights issues that, is, that exist in Mexico, um, he is focused on denying they exist. Um, his line is, is often to say publicly, we no longer have um, any of these human rights concerns because I personally am not a president who would order a human rights abuse to take place. But that's not how a huge country works. And that's not how uh, a, a, you know, systemic human rights there are real concerns um, and he is not willing, I think, to acknowledge that the problems exist. What, what we as human rights judges see is sort of our top concerns that he is not addressing, right? Um, there's the issue of violent crime and impunity. I already mentioned briefly impunity, right? But um, the murder rate is the highest that it's been in I mean, since official records began, I found an academic paper that was trying to extrapolate theoretically what the murder rate was in like 1940, which theoretically could have been higher, right? But in since modern records began, the murder rate has never been higher in Mexico. Um, it's 28 per 100,000. Um, and the justice system is completely ineffective at investigating crimes. The rate of impunity is 98 percent. So that means that only 2% of crimes are resolved in any way. And resolved does not mean that someone is sentenced and sent to jail. There, are, It could involve a plea bargain or some kind of other, uh, some kind of other resolution. Um, and Lopez Obrador's only response has been to say, he'll often in the 
press conferences, she'll just say there's no more impunity with with no further explanation as to what that means, which is not true. The, the rate of impunity is exactly the same as it always has been. Um, but at the same time, he's cut federal funding for police and prosecutors um, who should be, you know, addressing impunity for crimes. He's transferred a lot of their public security functions to the military, um, which has proven Excel to be exceptionally bad at investigating crimes. Um, and his main response has been to promote a series of reforms that have been passed that have made it much easier for authorities to send people to jail without convicting them of a crime. Um, and that's something that his government, like previous governments, frequently uses to try to give the impression that it's addressing the issue of violent crime. So they'll you know, have very public displays of detaining people who have not been convicted of a crime that get sent to jail, on, usually because of r- rules around mandatory pretrial detention for anyone who's been accused of a crime. Um, they, you know, they've started now a feature in, in the, the daily press conferences where they have photos of people who have not, as I say, have not been convicted of any crime, but they are publicly showing their photos and saying, this is, um, Quan and he is a murderer and he is being sent to jail. Um, it's, it's very worrying and it also does not address the issue. Um, there is, um, torture which is another issue that we've documented in Mexico for decades, and not just us, lots of human rights organizations. Um, and it, it has to do, again, with this failure of the justice system. In, in many of the cases where a case is resolved and someone is convicted of a crime, it's often because authorities tortured someone into confessing to a crime, regardless of whether they, they actually committed the crime. Um, the National Statistics Office does a, a survey every few years of people in prison. And the most recent survey, which was last year, found that um, 40% of people, or almost 40, it was like 39 or something, percent of people who had confessed to a crime said, I only confessed because the authorities beat me or threatened me or they threatened to um, go uh, do use violence against a family member of mine who was not being detained. Um, again, that's an issue where when, when human rights organizations try to raise that legitimate concern, uh, the president's response is one, there's no more torture because I would never order someone to be tortured, which is not, as I said, it's not how it works. The president doesn't need to order someone to be tortured for torture to happen. And two, these organizations that are exposing torture are obviously our opponents. They are part of a, a scheme to bring us down. Maybe they're paid by foreign governments um, and just d- dismisses the issue and, and, and won't have a, you know, a, a legitimate productive conversation about it. So that's very interesting. And it actually leads into one of the next questions that I have, which is that uh, I feel like in the U.S. media, sometimes there's really some confusion about how to label or characterize Lopez Obrador. You have have some academics who are 
categorizing him as uh, an authoritarian populist, but you also have other media outlets that talk about him being uh, a socialist or a left winger. So when it comes to human rights, right now on the global stage, we have this situation where China is actively presenting an alternative model where individual liberties and universal human rights are treated as secondary to national collective goals. Lopez Obrador frequently seems to advocate for national sovereignty over universal human rights and has cultivated friendly relations with autocratic rulers in Latin America, including Miguel Diaz-Canel in Cuba, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, and Nayib Bukele in El Salvador. And sometimes it seems like Lopez Obrador's political instincts push him to vilify NGOs, the media, human rights organizations, and environmental activists. But we also don't hear credible allegations that Lopez Obrador's government has gone to the extreme of physically attacking, arresting, or disappearing critics or political opponents. And I'm wondering, at the end of the day, do you think that Lopez Obrador fits the mold of an authoritarian leader, or do you think it's unfair to lump him together with other aspiring autocrats? I think, so there are a lot of people who want to put Lopez Obrador in the same category as someone like Nicolás Maduro, and I think that that's crazy. He maybe there can be a spectrum of autocratic behavior, but the situation in Venezuela or Cuba is catastrophic. He has what I would call autocratic tendencies, maybe, um, but they're more about, I mean, they're, they're much more sort of part of the, the, the populist movement that we're seeing now in many parts. I mean, I, I, so I would compare him less to Maduro or Castro and I or Diaz-Canel, and I would compare him to Bolsonaro in Brazil um, or to Nayib Bukele in, in El Salvador, um, who are, or Trump, or Trump. I, I have compared him to Trump in the past, actually, who are leaders who think more about using the tools of discourse and media um, to vilify opponents and portray a specific image of their government. So I, I think the morning the, the daily morning press conferences are an excellent example because the president says we have a freer press than we've ever had in history in Mexico, because anyone can come every morning to a press conference in the in the National Palace, um, and they can ask me a question. And what what president in the world has that? And that that is absolutely true. Anyone can go and get permission to go in and ask. A question. I mean, you might not get called on, but you can go attend the press conference and, and, and ask a question. And many journalists who have 
exposed, um, you know, the journalists who exposed this use of the spyware software, the day that their report was released, they went to the the press conference and they said, President, we have this report, blah, blah, blah. What is your response? And his response, I think, shows why the the press conferences are useful and how he sort of manipulates um, the narrative and uses this extreme media exposure to control the narrative because he flipped it around and he immediately, he didn't really address the accusations. He instead said, well, you know, some of the organizations that worked on this uh, investigation receive funding from USAID. So actually that means that they are, you know, um, funded to try to overthrow my government and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Didn't address whether it was true or false that the government had been spying on people. Um, instead sort of tried to attack the motives, but that drives the narrative. That's what get, that's what's in the news for the rest of the day is a video clip of the president saying, my opponents are paid for by the CIA or whatever. Um, so in that context, he doesn't need to, you know, it's not like um, Venezuela or Cuba where you'll get arrested for criticizing um, the government. But he uses this populist discourse of framing anyone who opposes him as a traitor and as morally bad. So his argument is not um, that, you know, let's have an open conversation and all points of view are good. His argument is if you do not support every thing that I that I do that and this government does, you are morally bad. Um, in that sense, um, I think he fits in with some populist semi-autocratic, this is why I say autocratic, autocratic tendencies, right? Um, with, with leaders who um, dismiss um, democratic institutions and and anything that doesn't support their narrative as sort of tools of of the elite or something. But to say that, I mean, I know you mentioned China and sort of thinking about models of individual versus individual liberties versus sort of collective goals. I don't know if that's, I think that honestly is giving him a lot of, uh, I don't know, but giving him more, more credit than is due. I think, I don't think he's thinking about philosophically whether or not human rights are universal or not. I think he has sort of very simple ideas about what he wants to achieve and He's certain, he's been certain for decades that those things are morally right. Um, and so he's not willing to entertain the idea that um, someone could have a legitimate reason to oppose them. I do think it's interesting that the three leaders that you chose as a comparison to Lopez Obrador are Bolsonaro in Brazil, 
uh, Bukele in El Salvador and Trump in the United States um, were three um, three right wing leaders. And um, it is interesting because that kind of fits in with an idea that Lopez Obrador, um, you know, might actually fit the mold of a leader who has some authoritarian tendencies, um, but fits the mold of a, a socially conservative populist rather than a, a like a left-wing populist like um, like Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, he's he's framed a lot of his um, he frames a lot of his discourse in populism, but his policies are not actually particularly reflective of anything that we would identify as the left um even his and some of his defenders i think even try, try to say well maybe he's socially conservative because he so he appears to oppose like abortion gay marriage um he opposes um, the environmental movement as a whole, he views his number, his sort of compass for everything is sovereignty, right? So he 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 thinks the most important thing is re- is rescuing the oil industry because the oil industry is a is a national industry. Um, but even in his social policies, um, he has cut social spending, um, like the overall amount of money that the government spends on social programs now is slightly less than it was under previous governments, even though he constantly talks about his social spending. Um, And he's also redirected a lot of the social spending. So they've closed a lot of programs. um, They used to be sort of free services for people. um, And instead um, they're just doing direct um, cash transfers to people there are people who really make an effort to try to position him somehow as on the left. And I think you, you really need to grasp at straws to do that because almost all of his policies come from the right. Definitely. And finally, I'm wondering if we can zoom out a little bit and look at the big picture here. And I'm wondering why should private sector executives and in particular foreign executives care about human rights issues in Mexico. And in particular, I'm wondering uh, what should foreign investors and executives be aware of when dealing with Mexican politicians in regards to local activists and journalists who might oppose certain investment projects? So I think there's sort of two parts of that. One is on a sort of local level with specific projects, I think it's important, um, you know, investors will often have a relationship with state and local officials. Um, and I think it's important for them to understand the context that they're working in, which is that there is a long history, you know, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, Mexico has very high levels of um, in of killings of environmental activists and of land defenders. Often the environmental activists are activists who oppose um, 
sometimes mega projects, sometimes extractive projects, sometimes um, mining or forestry projects um, that they see as having not been legitimately approved. Um, but, the, you know, there's this long history and context of those people being killed with impunity by local government and or so, by this nexus, I guess, of of local government and, and organized crime. And those, as I say, are cases where, you know, in a lot of them, we don't know what happened, but we know that so-and-so was opposed to X project and then mysteriously turned up dead. So there will automatically be a suspicion among many people of investors um, that, that they are willing to go to that length to get what they want. Um, but I think more generally, um, human rights issues in Mexico are a big part of um, operating here. Um, you know, understanding, I think that a lot, one of the main concerns that a lot of investors have, of course, is violence. Okay, definitely. Um, so yeah, I, I absolutely think it's, you know, it's really important that foreign investors um, kind of understand that the local level dynamics in Mexico are very complicated and that human rights issues absolutely need to be considered as part of the due diligence process. Um, you know, when executives are considering suppliers or potential investments in, in Mexico. But, um, but overall, I want to say um, it's been really interesting to hear your perspective on this topic. And I want to say, you know, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. It was, it was great to talk. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast. If you like what you hear on the podcast, check out my book, Searching for Modern Mexico, which is available on Amazon. The next episode of the podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.